Matthew 17 and 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Could we pray together tonight and ask that the Lord's will would be done? Would you help me pray right now? Would you lead us in prayer? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word tonight. Thank you for your spirit and your power. Thank you for your presence tonight, Lord. God, we're asking you tonight to meet us here in a mighty way. Let the will of God be done. Let your will be accomplished in this place tonight. Let hearts be tender before your presence. In the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. Praise God. Let the church say in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated tonight. Tell your neighbor tonight it's on you to help pastor preach. Praise God. So, with the verse that we read tonight for our text, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and how long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. It's obvious he's getting ready to heal somebody. We'll talk about that tonight. But as he opens up this statement with faithless and perverse, it makes you wonder what kind of worldly people he's talking to. Who exactly is it? that he is speaking to, that he would call faithless and perverse. So I'm going to cut to the chase tonight, and I'm going to let you know. It was his disciples. He wasn't talking to a bunch of Romans. He wasn't talking to a bunch of sinners. He was talking to the ones that were closest to his heart for three and a half years. And he said, you are faithless, and you are perverse. Now, how did we get there? It's kind of intriguing uh, Matthew 17 is full of powerful context because this is the chapter of transfiguration for Jesus. And this is a chapter that ought to mean something to us. If we didn't have anything other than this chapter in transfiguration, you would have to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. You would have to believe that Jesus was God at the transfiguration. There's no denying the fact when Jesus comes walking with Moses and Elijah and his face is transfigured, some uh, in theologian circles would say this is a theophany where Jesus is showing himself as God. But it's a powerful connection because Moses is representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus being the fulfillment of both, walking with them. So powerful a moment. But the Bible said that he had Peter, James, and John with him. And he took them to a high mountain, and there they saw him transfigured. As a matter of fact, it was so powerful that Matthew recorded it like this. He said his face did shine like the sun. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, really understand the context of that, that his face shined like the sun. This isn't just some euphemism. This isn't just some phrase like, oh, man, that kid's so good looking, he just shines like the sun. I'm telling you, Jesus' face shined like the sun. They could not look upon him. It was so powerful a moment. His raiment was white as the light. And the Bible said that it was such a bright moment. Then they saw Moses and Elijah and Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, this is a transitional moment in the rest of the chapter. Because Peter said when he saw Moses and Elias, he said, if thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles. Notice this. They've been walking with Jesus. They know who he is. 
He is now transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. There is no doubt that he is God manifest in the flesh. The Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, show up. And they said, well, let's make three tabernacles then. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So we can worship them. Are you seeing the context of what I'm saying? He's showing them who he is. And showing them the power of what he's fulfilling. And they're saying, well, let's worship them. Let's make a tabernacle where we can worship them. And I wonder how many times in my life I have missed the moments that God was trying to show me his power. And I completely missed the point of what he was trying to show me. And I started worshiping other things that I was seeing. And the, the Bible said that while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And the voice from heaven had to remind them, there's only one who you're going to worship. There's only one whom you're going to worship. And the Bible said that Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man. This is verse 8. But what did they see? Jesus only. I don't mind people calling me Jesus only. That's what you want to call me? Call me Jesus only. Because Jesus said, I don't want you worshiping nobody else. And I'm going to make it so clear to you that when this bright cloud leaves and you open up your eyes, the only thing you're going to see is who you're going to worship. And I want to tell you this tonight. John saw that same picture in the heavens in the book of Revelation. And I want to tell you that John saw one seated on the throne. And he is the one that we worship tonight. He is the one that we worship. So, they come down from the mountain, and Jesus says to them, he said, look, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody what you just saw until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. He's talking about his death again. His disciples asked him and said, why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And he said, well, he has come, and they, that's when they realized he was talking about John the Baptist, and I'm filling in a lot of gaps here in a hurry. But they knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. And while he was in a teaching moment with them, the Bible said that they were come to the multitude. And there came to him a certain man. So here's the picture. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with three disciples, his core. He comes down off the mountain and said, don't say anything. There's some things that had to be fulfilled. John the Baptist fulfilled that. And they come to the multitude. And that's where the multitude and the rest of the disciples were. And out of that multitude comes a man that says to him, he said, Lord, he said, I want you to have mercy on my son. Because my son is a lunatic. He is sore vexed. For all times he falleth into the fire and into the water. Now verse 16 is where we get the moment where we took our text tonight. This is so crazy to me. 17 and 16. He said, my son is in deep trouble. And I brought him to your disciples. And they could not cure him. We brought him to the people that have followed you. And there was no solution. Now I don't know exactly how long Jesus was away from them in this transfiguration moment. How many hours it would have been that he was gone. But apparently there was enough time from the time that him and the three others left and went up the mountain and came back down. That this man was looking for direction and deliverance for his son. And the Bible said that when he brought his son to the disciples... That there was nothing they could do for him. I wonder if this isn't a picture of the modern day church. That we like to talk about how much we've been with him. We like to talk about how powerful our meetings with him have been. 
We love to sit around in crowds and tell people about old stories and old miracles and old revivals. But when the, the lunatic son comes and really needs deliverance and our churches have become social clubs. Woo! Our churches have become glorified cafes. They've become glorified entertainment centers where we do it all in Jesus' name and the lunatic walks in the door a lunatic and walks out the door a lunatic. This is such a powerful moment to me. I was reading this tonight sitting at my desk and I, couldn't, I, I can't explain to you what it did to me when it said, I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. I'm telling you tonight that there needs to be power in the church. There needs to be power in the local assembly. Let me pastor you for just a minute tonight and tell you that your pastor is not the only one who can pray the prayer of faith over the sick. Your pastor is not the only one that can cast out devils. There needs to be power in the body of Christ. Jesus did not spend three and a half years with them so that he could continue being the one to do the miracles. He was empowering them to do the miracles. He was empowering them to walk by faith. But when the need arose and Jesus was not present, they did not have the power to deliver the man. And this takes us to the very place that we see uh, this principle happen over and over again. That when Moses ascends into the mountain to be with God, just as Jesus and these three disciples did, and he's with God in the mountain and the law is being, giving, being given, the Bible said that while Moses was missing, they started building a golden calf in the valley. What is it that when the man of God is removed, that the power of God disappeared from the people? I will say this tonight, and it sounds probably counterproductive in some ways because I don't personally believe you can be saved without a relationship with a man of God. I believe, I believe that's biblical. How shall they be saved without a preacher? Right? And how can he preach unless he be sent? I believe you have to have a relationship with a man of God, and that directly connects you with a relationship with the local church. But I want to tell you that in this end time church, God is trying to move us out of this thought process that when people come to us and they have real needs in their lives, that our answer to them is not, let me get you to church and let my pastor pray for you. I appreciate the confidence and I love you and I thank God that I'm your pastor, but I want to tell you. That there are times and there are needs that cannot wait until Wednesday or Sunday. We've got to get beyond just going to church and we've got to start working on being the church. I don't think we ought to be ashamed to pray for our co-workers. I don't think we ought to be ashamed to pray for people in the stores. I'm praying, God, give me boldness. Give me the same boldness on a Tuesday afternoon that I've got on a Sunday night. I want boldness to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I want boldness to pray for my neighbor that's sick in their bed. I want boldness to pray for my coworker who got a report of cancer in their body. I want God to be glorified. God is working in the church, but we are so afraid, we are so afraid that it's going to fail, that it keeps us from moving forward with action. And I would say to you tonight to take all of the pressure off of your shoulders, you are not the one that's on trial. God is on trial. God is the one who determines his will, not man. But I will say this tonight. I think it'd be a sad thing 
if God could heal somebody, but we never gave him the chance because we wouldn't ask. Well, but pastor, what if I pray and they don't get healed? Then it must not have been the will of God for them to get healed. But I don't want to leave this life knowing that God presented me with opportunities to make a difference and let his glory be known and let his face shine. And I miss my moment. Woo! Tell your neighbor tonight it's right even if it's tight. So I'm going to preach to you for a few minutes, and I'm going to give you my title now. I'm going to preach this to you. I've got connections. I've got connections. Now, I made up my mind when I started reading the scripture several years ago that I really want to be like Jesus but you probably don't want me to pastor like Jesus would pastor. I want to have the boldness of the Apostle Paul. But I'm going to be honest with you. You probably don't want me pastoring like Paul. This man came to Jesus and said, my son's a lunatic. I brought him to your disciples. And they could not cure him. So Jesus, if you read the context, he ignores the man. And he uses it as a teaching moment. And Jesus turns to his disciples. I'm telling you, I would make y'all mad if I talked to you like this. I know I would because I make you mad and I talk sweet to you. You got a desperate man down on his knee. That's what I said. He fell down before him. He's down on his knees and he said, my son is vexed. Help me. I brought him and your disciples couldn't cure him. And I wasn't there. They didn't have video cameras in. But I'm going to tell you what I see Jesus doing. The man's down there. The disciples stand over here and Jesus goes. You faithless and perverse generation. How many of y'all would appreciate that? Pastor, I prayed, I prayed for my kids this week and they... They didn't get healed. What's wrong with you, faithless pervert? He said, you faithless, perverse generation. This is so powerful, y'all. He's getting ready to leave. He's been transfigured. He said, how long am I going to be with you? No, notice the context of what I'm preaching to you right now. He said, I left you for a few hours, and you couldn't get it done. How much longer do you think I'm going to be here? How long am I going to be with you? How long shall I suffer you? He stops chiding them and looks at the man and says, bring him to me. I wish I could have been there to see it. I'd like to give Jesus a high five. Of course, I probably would have been one of the disciples. So I'd have been faithless and perverse. But I want you to notice where I'm going tonight. Spent three, over three years at this point. They'd been with Jesus over three years. Right before his crucifixion. How much time do we have to spend with him? Before we finally start believing what he says. How many church services do we have to sit through? Before we finally start believing what the word of God has been teaching us coming across this pulpit. We hear preaching on revival and we hear preaching on harvest. You know it's funny because people aren't even talking about things that had it stirred up just a few weeks ago. I was reading just, just the other night. Matter of fact. I was sitting over here on the front row reading in the sanctuary late at night. And I was reading the historical account of the last revival at Asbury. Not this one that just happened, but 1970. Brother Frank, you and I talked about it. 
There were three students that left Asbury University in 1970. They left Kentucky, drove to Anderson, Indiana. Three students. Went to Anderson College then, it's university now. Went to Anderson College and started telling about the prayer meeting and revival that had erupted at Asbury. And then... It started breaking out at Anderson College on the campus and they needed a bigger place to meet so they started meeting at South Meridian Church of God and within the first three or four nights over 500 people were gathering because of a revival that broke out on a college campus. Well Asbury had another revival again and you know, whatever they did with it that's fine. Whatever you know God sends revival to give us a chance to respond. But it's amazing how quickly people stop talking about it. It's amazing how quickly people stop talking about divine moments and intersections with God where we meet together and mighty things happen and powerful things happen. Anybody in here ever been healed of an incurable disease? Two? Who else? I got two over here. Anybody else been healed of an incurable disease? Anybody in here ever been healed of a debilitating disorder, whether it be back, spine, neck, couldn't walk? Brother Elvis, I know. Two, three, four. Any, anybody in here ever been delivered and you were a horrible addict, alcoholic, drug addict, you've been delivered? Just raise both hands, big daddy. Brother the looper. Sister Crema, look, what I'm saying to you is how powerful are the works that he's done in your life and you haven't even thought about them this week? How long has it been since you've thought about what it was like when he picked you up out of a terrible pit? These were men that he picked up on the seashores out of their fishing boats. Peter, Peter was a, a, he, he was a tough dude. He had a serious attitude problem. And the Lord was really working on Peter, really working on his life. But I'm saying to you, what would it take for us to really believe that God can really do what he says that he can do? If they didn't believe it after three, three and a half years of walking with Jesus, this is why this question is so important. He said, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to be with you? Another way that you could ask this question is, what in the world are you going to do when I'm gone? After you've been healed, after you've been delivered, after you've been set free, how long does it take it to just become normal to you that you don't even think of the goodness of the Lord anymore? Now we're just going to church. Now we're just in the routine. Now we're just with the big group that's gathered together. But the problem is that sooner or later, somebody in the multitude is going to have a son that's a lunatic and possessed, and they're going to need some real power. Ooh, I wish somebody would pick up what I'm putting down right now. Jesus said, I want, I want something to be crystal clear. I didn't just come to establish my kingdom for while I'm here. I came to establish my kingdom for when I'm gone. I came to establish my kingdom so that you could function in my kingdom until my kingdom comes back to the earth. Again, I want to tell you something, church. There's nobody in this world, hear me tonight, there's nobody in this world that loves good church more than I do. I'd be in church seven nights a week if I thought my health and my body and, and all of you people could put up with it, we'd have church seven nights a week. And I'm going to tell you something about FPC. I'm going to brag on you. We have really good church. I can say this tonight emphatically. I believe we have what Anderson's looking for right here. I believe we've got it. 
We have Holy Ghost Church. We have Powerful Church. I don't ever want to stop talking about the stuff that happens here. I don't ever want to stop running the aisles. I don't ever want to stop dancing. I don't ever want to stop shouting. I don't ever want to stop getting victory. I don't ever want to stop victory marches. Come on, I don't ever want to give that up. But what I'm asking you tonight is, what are we going to do with it after the visitation and after the power and after the victory? What's it going to look like when we leave the presence? Y'all are either listening real close or you're exhausted. I know you're listening. What are we going to do? Jesus is frustrated. I know it's hard for you to believe, but Jesus was frustrated. He said, you are faithless and perverse. So what does this, what does this reveal? And this is the crux of what I'm going to preach to you tonight. Jesus turned to them when the problem was presented that there was a, a, a son that needed to be healed and the disciples couldn't do, this, do that. He said to them, he said, there's two problems and this is the two problems. He said, you are faithless and you are perverse. Everybody say faithless and perverse. This feels pretty heavy. Some pretty heavy language. But what is he saying? I'm going to just teach to you right here for a little bit. I want this to get into your spirit. He said to them, you are faithless. What is this indicative of? If you are faithless, that means you are disconnected from God. He said you are perverse. That means you are connected to carnality. Are you with me? Faithless means you have disconnected from God. You haven't been spending time doing what I taught you to do while we were together. You enjoyed the Sunday night, but when Monday came around, you allowed yourself to get disconnected. When you got to work, you got distracted and you got disconnected. But this is the thing I want you to understand. As strong as his comment sounds to them that you are faithless and perverse, I want you to know that you can't have one of those without the other. The reason that he was saying to them, you're perverse, is because they were faithless. And when you disconnect from God, you'll still be connected to something. People don't like this kind of preaching, but I'm telling you right now, you are going to be owned by something in your life. I don't want the church. It's got too, much, too many rules and restrictions. I don't care about the Bible. Well, look, I'm going to tell you, I realize and I'll be the first to admit, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. I have become a servant unto him. I understand that I'm not my own. I get that. But neither is the addict. Neither is the alcoholic. Neither is the one that's caught up in perverse promiscuity. They are not their own. Something owns them. Something controls them. Something is manipulating them. You are going to be owned by something no matter what you do. But you choose the path. And if you are faithless or you have disconnected from God, you have automatically connected yourself to carnality. This is the process of backsliding. I've been with God. I've been connected with God. But now I don't want the church anymore. So I'm disconnecting myself from God. But what you don't know is you still got connections. The moment you unplug from his presence, you plug into something else. I was a precious man of God who's passed on now. I was sitting with him talking one day and he was telling me about this man 
in his church and he said, uh, he said the man was an absolute fool. He said he was just, he said he was horrible. He lived a promiscuous life. And he said, I don't understand how he did it. The man was filthy. But he said, that guy could forevermore pray. And he said, it used to frustrate me to death. And he said, I came into the church one day. And I've been in that building many times. Um, as you walk into the sanctuary, all the way down on the left side of the sanctuary, it's like, kind of like our old sanctuary, it's long. And as you came up towards the platform, on the left side off, off the platform was a big prayer room. That's where they prayed. And he said, I came into the church one day and that guy was in the prayer room. Had committed adultery and messed his marriages up. Just a mess. He said, and I walked in and that guy was praying the paint off the walls. He said, that guy was forevermore lighting it up in that prayer room. And he said, I walked up to the door and saw him praying. And I said, God, I don't understand that. He said, how in the world does somebody so carnal like that get so tapped in? And he said, I heard the Lord say to me, because I have tapped him through to another spirit. It looked like godliness. But because of what he had connected himself to, he had disconnected himself from God. And it is possible, we know it's possible, because on judgment day, Jesus said that many people would point for validation to their ministry and their prayer life and the devils that they cast out and the people that they healed because it looks like they're connected. But what did he say? Depart. Because you are a worker of iniquity. You still got connections. You wanted everybody to think you were plugged into my presence. But you had disconnected from my presence and you were plugged into something else. Somebody say it tonight. I've got connections. The moment that you begin to disconnect from consecration with God, you immediately begin to reconnect yourself to something else. He said, you are faithless, therefore you are perverse. Are you with me? You are faithless, therefore you are perverse. Now, Jesus, I will say this. He never presents the problem by what he doesn't present the cure. And so Jesus said to them, he said, you're faithless and you're perverse. How long shall I be with you? Bring him to me. Verse 18. Jesus rebuked the devil. And he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. That's a good thing. Thank the Lord for it. He took care of it. But now the disciples are curious in verse 19. They came to Jesus apart. In other words, they got away from the crowd because they knew that he had chewed their backside up. They were embarrassed. He had told them in front of everybody, you are faithless and you perverse. So they said, uh, could we talk over here, just us? They came apart. And they said, okay, you presented the problem. So we want to ask you, why couldn't we cast him out? What, what is the problem? Why could we not cast him out. Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as of a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now let me explain a principle here. I'm going to try to get in and out of it quick. But I want to explain something to you that I misunderstood all in my childhood in Sunday school. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, I've been in Sunday school classes many times where they got a mustard seed and taped it to my paper. Anybody here ever do that in Sunday school? Your teachers got to have faith as a grain of mustard seed. And we'd put that little seed, put the tape over it. 
Faith as of a grain of mustard seed. And I always believed that what he was saying is, and we even had the song about it, you don't need a whole lot. Come on. Just use what you got. Faith, faith, faith. Just a little bit of faith. And I believe that. I'm not discounting that. But I don't believe that Jesus was speaking alone to the size of the faith. I believe that Jesus was speaking as creator. When he said, if you have faith as of a grain of mustard seed. And I believe there's probably a reason he said mustard seed. Perhaps there were mustard fields there. And he pointed to the field and said, if you have faith as of a grain of mustard seed. I believe if he'd have been standing in an olive orchard, he could have said, if you have faith as a grain of olive seed. You understand what I'm saying? The principle was not the size. The principle was the seed. And that principle was put into law on the third day of creation. Listen to me. That whatever is sown is reaped. And the law is in the seed. It doesn't matter if it's an apple seed or a mustard seed. What Jesus was saying is the seed knows. It's not the size of the faith. It's the fact that the seed just knows when it's planted, it's coming out. When it's planted, it reproduces. He said, I want your faith to get so natural to you that you, like the mustard seed, you just know. Because the seed knows when it's planted, there's going to be fruit. Well, I just got to have a little bit of faith. That may be true. A little bit of faith is better than no faith. But the kind of faith we need is the kind of faith that said God said it and I believe it and it's going to happen. Let me preach it to you this way. It's harvest time in Indiana. You could plant a field full of corn and stand out there. I don't care. Get you a choir. Get you a thousand voice choir to stand out there at the edge of the field and discourage that seed every day and say, nah, 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 nah. You're never going to grow. You're stupid. You're never going to grow. You're never going to have fruit. Just say it all you want to. Stand out there at the edge of the field all day long and criticize the seed that's in the ground. Oh, God, I'm preaching right now. Just stand out there and discourage it. You're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to come to pass. And if you stand there long enough, in just a few days, you're going to see green come up out of the ground. You stay down. You don't deserve to grow. You're horrible. You're worthless. Stand there a little longer and watch what happens. Just a few days, it's going to come up a little bit higher. What I'm saying to you is, When your faith becomes like the seed, discouragement don't matter because the seed has been planted. God have mercy. When your faith becomes like the seed, it's irrelevant what the naysayers say. My faith is not predicated on your encouragement and my faith is not predicated on your discouragement. My faith is like the seed. It just knows. It just knows. The seed knows. When you've got faith like the seed, there's law in it. But pastor, what if God fails me? That's not mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith says, he can't fail me. Are you hearing me? He cannot fail me. I lost my job, pastor. What if God fails me? He can't fail. You'll have another job. If you've been faithful to God, you've paid your tithe, you've obeyed the word of God, there will be fruit. How do you know? Because the seed knows. I could stay there. That's a sermon all of its own. But I told you i got to get in and out of that quick. He said, because of your unbelief, 
when you approached the man that had the demon, your faith was not like the seed. But I'm saying to you, if you've got faith like as of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, I wish I could have been there to hear him say, I don't believe he was literally saying that this mountain that we're standing on would just be moved and cast into the sea. I believe he was saying this with power to let them know there's nothing that's impossible. You could say to this mountain, just fall into the sea because if I said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Are y'all with me tonight? Now, he said, how be it? Verse 20, uh, 21. He said, this kind goeth not out. Lord. Woo. But by prayer and fasting. Faithless means that I am disconnected from God. Perverse means that I'm connected to the world, to carnality. But prayer connects me to God. And fasting disconnects me from carnality. Are you with me? He said this is the cause. You are disconnected from God and you are connected to carnality. But if you will seek me in consecration, prayer will reconnect you to God and fasting will disconnect you from flesh. I don't say this very often, but I'm teaching good right now. You need to understand this. We overcomplicate this. I want to have the kind of revival where devils are being cast out. How be it? How, 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 how much do I have to pray? Let me show you something. Put that verse back up there for me, y'all. Thank you so much. How much prayer and fasting does it take? That's the wrong way to ask, but I'm going to give you an answer anyway. He said, how be it this kind? This is so interesting. This is another one of those scriptures that if you just read it fast, you just think he's talking about the devil. This kind. Listen. It takes as much prayer and fasting as this kind requires. Whatever this kind is. I've never faced a devil like this kind. I've never faced a battle like this kind. And I don't know what to do with this kind. He said this kind only goes out with prayer and fasting. How much? However much it takes to get rid of this kind. Because this kind may be worse than that kind was. What I'm facing in this kind may by far be more difficult than what I faced with that time. But I know this. Whatever it takes me to get rid of this kind. I'm going to stay plugged in to the presence of God and disconnected from my flesh. And that's what allows me to have faith like the seed. Oh, you ain't hear me tonight. When I get connected to the heart of God and I get disconnected from my flesh, all of a sudden my faith looks different. And I stop asking stuff to leave and I start commanding stuff to leave. I'm... I'm I'm just about done. I've been around a lot of devils being cast out. Seen a lot of it in my life. Man, I've been down to Louisiana. Revivals as a kid. Those people be doing all kinds of crazy voodoo and witchcraft. And we were in Missouri one night. Matter of fact, it's the same church that I got the Holy Ghost in. Puxico, Missouri. And uh, this little girl named Flo, she was connected with the pastor's family. She was kind of an adopted daughter to him. And old Flo got into some stuff, I'm just going to tell you. Flo got into some stuff. I don't know what it was she was playing with, but it was bad. And my old dad got to preaching one night and the Holy Ghost got to moving. 
And Sister Flo got to writhing around a little bit. And it kills me. Just as soon as that happens, you can tell where people's connections are. Because they start, oh God, get the kids out. Get the kids, take the kids to the nursery. Get, get all the kids out of here. Take all the kids out. Get all the kids out of here. Oh my Lord, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I'm not worried about the kids. I'm worried about you. What if that devil comes out and gets on our kids? I ain't worried about that devil getting on my kids. I'm worried about the devil getting on the ones that's got the wrong connections. Old Flo got to gagging. We got a trash can out. She got to gagging. And this green stuff started coming out of her nose, face. She got to puking up black stuff. And people were nervous. And people crack me up when they start negotiating with devils. Now I'm just telling you tonight. You're going you're gonna to come out of there. Hey, let me tell y'all something. He didn't die on Calvary for me to negotiate with a devil. If I'm connected to the right source, I'm not asking that devil to leave. I'm commanding that devil to leave and he's going to go. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying when you get plugged into the right source in your house, you don't have to walk through your house asking spirits to leave. You grab you a bottle of oil and walk through your house and you command that spirit to leave. I command that lying spirit to get out of my house. I command that spirit of lust to get out of my house. I command that spirit of adultery Get out of my house. How can you do that? Because the seed knows. And I've got connection. Go ahead and stand with me tonight. i got to quit. I want, I want y'all to know who you are tonight. When you get plugged in. Ooh, I'm connected. Oh, shatalamahayalobashai. I'm connected to God, and I've disconnected from my flesh. But you hear your pastor tonight when I tell you, it's a fine line, a thin line on what you're staying connected to. You don't have to miss too much prayer before you disconnect that and plug into another spirit. All I'm saying to you is, some of us would be just like those disciples and we'd be in trouble. I'm preaching to all of us. We'd be in trouble if we had to cast the devil out on some, some day besides a Sunday. We'd be in trouble if we had to pray the prayer of faith on another day besides Sunday or Wednesday. But it is the will of God. For every man, every woman, and every child in this church to plug in. Prayer, prayer and fasting. This kind will leave when we pray and fast. Pastor, I've been facing a mountain like I've never faced. That kind's going to leave when you get plugged into prayer and fasting. It is the will of God. How many of you believe that tonight? I've got connections. One way or the other, I've got connections. But I'm going to have to decide what those connections are. Tonight, I want to admonish this church to tap into the spirit of prayer that God has been trying to birth in this church. I've been feeling it for several months, but we're having a hard time really tapping into what God is calling us to. But the Lord's calling us to deep seasons of prayer. Brother Holmes... So funny because he's so passionate about prayer. I was watching a little clip today from the podcast of Brother McKillop, Kingdom, uh, Kingdom Speak. He had Brother Holmes on this week in Canada. Brother Holmes, I've heard him talk about it so many times, but he said, 
Isaiah said it and Jesus said it. My house shall be called a house of prayer. He said he didn't say my house shall be called a house of worship. He didn't say my house shall be called a house of preaching. He said, brother, matter of fact, you can't have preaching if you don't have prayer. He said, we built that church in Little Rock, and I told them people in our church, these pews can't pray. This carpet can't pray. It ain't a house of prayer because the seats are praying. It's a house of prayer because the people are praying. I'm going to make you a promise tonight, and there's not a lot of things I can promise you, but I want to tell you. There's a lot of things in life I've got wrong. But if I can get those two things right, prayer and fasting, consecration, all this other foolishness that distracts me all the time, it just seems to fade away when I'm spending time in prayer and in fasting. If you want God to birth a desire in you tonight, like you've never had for consecration. I just want you right where you are to close your eyes and lift your hands towards heaven. Say, God, I want you to birth it in me. If I'm going to have connections, I want it to be with the heart of God. Lord, if everything else in my life goes away, but I'm connected to the heart of God, that's all that matters. Come on, somebody get bold enough to pray it tonight. Take this whole world. But give me Jesus. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Oh, come on, church. I want to hear you tonight. God, if you're going to birth it, do it in me tonight. If there's going to be revival, let it start in me. Help us tonight. Help us tonight. God, I believe if we'll get it right, we'll see revival like we've never seen. I believe if we get it right, we'll see carnality leave. Woo! Come on, I feel His presence here right now. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I've had people ask the question through the years. Pastor, do you believe I have to speak in tongues every day? That's the wrong way to ask that question. I don't want to know about whether or not I have to speak in tongues every day. But all I'm saying is to you, why wouldn't you want to? If it connects me to the heart of God, do you know why the devil hates people speaking in tongues? Because he can't understand a word you're saying. When the Spirit starts making intercession in you, the devil has to stand off in the distance in frustration because the Holy Ghost is praying in you. And what the devil don't know, he can't cut you off with.